So perhaps you have spiders dropping into your life, or perhaps you have just some other interesting things that you have woven a story about. The person speaking today always inspires us and inspires us to use what's happening in our life and reminding us that it always serves our good. Will you welcome with me our own Reverend Patrick Cameron. All right. Good morning. So I know most of you have been here before, and we usually sing a song and do a prayer. And we'll do that again right now. But we're going to sing a different song this morning than we typically do. And I've asked the band to join me because it's fun to be up here with everybody. And Hey, George. How are you, buddy? One of my big fans, George, there is waving at me, so I don't want to miss not waving at George. Anyway, this is a song that uh, is, it was uh, adapted from a poem by, let's see if I can do his full name, Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi. And he was born in 1207, and, Co- and he, he, he eventually settled in Konya, uh, Turkey. But uh, he was, his family was driven out of uh, Afghanistan by uh, Genghis Khan, <clears throat> and he died in 1273. And he is the most prolific writer of poetry, and the most popular poet in the United States, and I would imagine that a bit of that carries over into Canada. And this is a song that many of you have heard. It's, it's based on a very short bit of uh, verse by him called Come. <clears throat> so, ready? Okay, buddy. It doesn't matter if you've broken your vows a 
God's life. I claim that life as my own in this moment. And so I close that gap in any way, shape, or form in my own awareness of the truth of my being. And as I open to that, I'm infused with the right and perfect ideas and insights in this moment that allow me to be that blessing upon the earth that is so desperately called for. And so I readily, willingly, and ably step up to my call. For this I give thanks. I give thanks for the blessings of this day, for music, for laughter, for love, for friendship, for creativity, and for the unbounded possibilities to stand in the, both worlds, the mystical and the practical, and to apply that experience with great beauty and joy 
and generosity. For this I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. So it's fun to be able to do that. I mean, it's really fun. I, I, it is an experience. And it's just fun to be up here because it's just a wave of uh, experience and joy and fun. And, and, um, and the hundreds and thousands of hours that have gone into me getting that song together are a testimony that, yeah, I can teach an old dog new tricks. So anyway... Uh, wonderful stuff, and I, I so appreciate the music. We've been using uh, poetry. You know, we're a very, we're a very uh, celebratory in how we do a spiritual community, and, be, and, and, and it's around this whole idea of celebration. It's around dance. It's around story. It's around inspiration. It's around the, um, and it's around the silence. And so any way we can do that and create that experience. So the music does that, and we've been, I've been using poetry, and if you've been around me at all, you know I love poetry. And one of the things that I love about it is it does, as David White says, one of my favorite poets on the planet, uh, says poetry is the experience. If poetry is well written, it's timeless, it crosses all cultures, and it speaks to that heart, uh, that longing that we, we all have in common. And so I think it's one of the things that has, has always drawn me to uh, great poetry. Rumi, the song we just sang, is a poem. Uh, Rumi has written... He wrote, he would write, Rumi would, would grab a, there was a pole that he would circle around with his hand and he would just go into sort of this altered state of awareness and he would recite poetry and then his students would write as, fa- as fast as they could. He was also a musician. And, uh, and so what we have now, he's got, I think they, that they've translated about 2,000 2, of Rumi's poems and there's about another 20 or 30,000 yet to be translated. So we're just scratching the surface of what this amazing... Uh, individual, and he was a member of the Sufi tradition, and the Sufis are the, the lovers of God in the, in the uh, Islamic tradition. And so his, his legacy is, it continues to be with us, and fortunately he was around soon enough that we wrote things down, and it's recorded, so it's wonderful to have it. So poetry is the experience, and what David White talks about, and I've been using some of David White's poetry to help uh, expand and, and uh, accent and support some of the discussion we've been having, and I started out at the beginning of the month with 10 questions. And the questions are really uh, ways of contemplating in a way that is very specific and direct about what we might uh, entertain and think about as we go along the journey. So they're not questions, in other words, to answer, but they're questions to use as a tool in our experience. And I'm not going to backtrack today on the first six, but if you're interested, you can go on Oprah Winfrey's website, and she has it on her website. The 10 questions that should never go away, is, and it's by David White. <coughs> The first question that I'm going to talk about today is number seven of of the ten questions. Is how can I know what I am actually saying? How can I know what I'm actually saying? And David uses the poetry as an example of this. Poetry, as David has written here, is often the art of overhearing yourself, saying things you didn't know you knew. It is a learned skill to force yourself to articulate your life, your present world, or your possibilities for the future. And we need that same skill as an art of survival. We need to overhear the tiny but very consequential things we say that reveal ourselves to ourselves. So it's interesting because it really is noticing what we give our attention to. Noticing the noticer, which is us. 
And David would say that <clears throat> what happens with, with uh, poets and what, what, what brings you to good poetry is the poet must simply get fed up with himself. He must become fed up with ourselves in order for a new idea to be given birth. Because, you know, we've all had these experiences in life. We've done the same behavior over and over and over again, and we expect different results. And finally, we just get to the point where we say, I can't do this anymore. I've done this, been there, done this enough. It's time to change. And typically, that is when the change begins for us. He, and he talks about, uh, and what I love about David is, is his influences. And I think that one of the things that resonate with is he's, he's had very similar influences to what my experience has been growing up. He grew up in, in England, in Yorkshire, England, which is the north of England, and he talks about his father. And growing up in Yorkshire, England, his father was the kind of guy that would say, a spade is a spade. This is life. Look out, see life, and that's what it is. And his mother was from Ireland. And what his mother's attitude was, a spade is whatever you want to make it. And so he had these two different perspectives on life. And, and so the, the Celtic tradition, and, and my mother's very similar to this, so I can really relate to this, David's mother and my mom should have got together. Uh, but um, is that, that with, the, with the Celtic tradition, it's always their, their idea is that the, the, the other world is just around the corner. And it's just a step away. But many people will spend a whole lifetime contemplating this step but never taking this step. And it is that mystical journey of stepping into that, that, the mystery. And so what David realized as a young man, he was felt called, what shall I do? And he said he was sitting out on a stone one day and he was looking out over the landscape and he realized that his opportunity was not to pick one or the other. It wasn't uh, a spade is a spade or a spade is whatever I, I decide it's going to be. It was to uh, develop the conversation between the two. Because both have value and both are important. And so that is what informs his poetry. And that's what in, in, informs his, his wisdom on the planet. And he's had a, an amazing, amazing life of of uh, diversity and travel and experiences that have informed and continue to inform his poetry. He's a guy that will go into a, a corporate environment and use poetry to help, to help nurture transformation within a lot of environments. And one of the things we see happening on the planet right now is a lot of change. And so as David says, when I go in with the poetry, I make the conversation real. So that's one of his passions. He talks about in, in this uh, seventh uh, question... How can I know what I'm actually saying? He says, I have one friend who, when she is in a quandary, goes off for a drive in her car and she sings. Whatever she's grappling with, she sings about it, to the windscreen, to the road, to the oncoming traffic. And then she overhears herself singing how she actually feels about something and what she should do about it. And sometimes she pulls up to a stoplight, other people look over at her, she's singing, slightly crazed into the windscreen. But that's her way. So, you know, a lot of times when we see, and what singing does, interestingly enough, and, and what um, meditation will do, and I've shared some meditation practice with you, it takes you out of that intellect. It takes you out of that, that linear thinking, which, um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to share a bit of that to set up this, this uh, bit of poetry. I'm not going to read the whole thing with you, but he, this is from David White, and it's titled, What to Remember When Waking. What to Remember When Waking. In that first hardly noticed moment in which you wake, coming back to this life from the other more secret, movable, and frighteningly honest world where everything began, there is a small opening into the day which comes the moment you begin your plans. What you can plan is too small for you to live. What you can live wholeheartedly will make plans enough for the vitality hidden in your sleep. 
To be human is to become visible while carrying what is hidden as a gift to others. To remember the other world in this world is to live your true inheritance. So he's speaking directly to this idea. We all can tap into that in our dream state, in our meditation, in our practice, in those, those moments of insight, which typically for me have been moments where I least expect it, because as soon as I decide that I'm going to expect it, nothing happens. I don't know if that's been your experience, but the, the, the fastest way for me to shut it down is to get into my linear thinking and say, you know, what I need to know right now is going to be made clear to me, and then I'll just stand there and tap my foot for seems like hours, and then I'll have to forget and go do something else, and as I go do something else, all of a sudden the awareness will come. So what I've learned to do is set the intention and then just forget about it because I know that that, 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 that that level of communication is a different frequency. It's a different wavelength. How can I know what I'm actually saying? And so it's paying attention. He continues in this poem. You are not a troubled guest on this earth. You are not an accident amidst other accidents. You were invited from another and greater night than the one from which you have just emerged. Now looking through the slanting light of the morning window toward the mountain presence of everything that can be, what urgency calls you to your one love? What shape waits in the seed of you to grow and spread its branches against the future sky? Is it waiting in the fertile sea, in the trees beyond the house, in the life you can imagine for yourself, in the open and lovely white page on the waiting desk? and, And he talks about the challenge as a poet of waiting and having that piece of white paper before him and listening. He just, and he talks about how similar that is to Buddhism, the, the waiting. The eighth question is, how can I drink from the deep well of things as they are? In west of Ireland, there are very old, very sacred wells everywhere, and the locals call them blessed wells or holy wells. At them you'll find notes to the dead, bits of ribbon, keepsakes that people have left when they've said a prayer for a child or someone who's sick. Often a local church will have a mass out there once a year. These holy wells are everywhere and they're part of the local imagination and they have been for thousands of years. So it's always informed the culture. He continues, all intimate relationships, close friends and good marriages are based on continued and mutual forgiveness. Continued and mutual forgiveness. You will always trespass upon your friend's sensibilities at one time or another, or your spouse's. The only question is, will you forgive the other person? And more importantly, will you forgive yourself? We have to deepen our understanding, make ourselves more equal to circumstances, more easy with what we have been given or not given, and must drink from the deep well of things as they are. The deep well of things as they are. Yeah. So it is really about being willing to take that step. To take the, your, some, as I said earlier, take, to take their whole life to take that next step. What David says all of us have is we are desperate for a sense of belonging, a moment of eternity. And when an eternity is not going on and on and on, the eternal moment is now, and it's outside of time. And it's that spaciousness a couple of weeks ago, I, I introduced that meditation practice that when you rub your fingers together and you, think, and, you, and you put your attention on your breathing, what happens is it puts you into spaciousness where there's no thinking. And then if you catch yourself thinking, just go back to your breathing. It's a wonderful practice. 
But it's a simple way to trick the mind because the, the linear mind, and this is what David's talking about when we come out of the sleep, we start to make plans. We, start to, we all have an agenda. And the agenda, there's nothing wrong with the agenda, but there may be something more interesting to think about than the same things, things I've been thinking about over and over and over again for the last 10 years. Because I got those down. What's the, the bigger idea? See what, what, what I think useful and effective people do is they find more interesting things to dwell upon. And if worry, worry is a very popular habit. So I think what, what David is speaking to here, because what's happened is the linear mind has taken us so far. And he talks about this and talks about this and talks about it. But the linear mind, that, that planning mind, has taken us so far. And it's wonderful. Look at all the technology we have and instantaneous communication. All that stuff's good stuff. But that is not the end unto itself. And this is why you see things happening on, on um, systems unraveling. You know, they've got the, the budget crisis in the United States right now. And they're not going to pass the budget. And so there's a lot of fear around what will happen. But fear is a very popular idea. And so he talks about it later on, and I think it's very powerful and wonderful, but he, he talks about belonging is to, to the ability to live in the world without fear. Belonging is the ability to live in the world without fear. And belonging is belonging to oneself. Now, when I tell you that, it's easy to think, well, I need, I, I, of course I belong to myself. I'm not talking about the personality, and I'm not talking about the egoic nature. That's a different sense of self. Those are the identities and the layers we put on ourselves so that we can function in the world and how we can be in relationships with one another. This is about the relationship of that deep sense of knowing at the core of all of our beings. All intimate relationships, close friendships, and good marriages are based on continued and mutual forgiveness. You will always trespass upon your friend's sensibilities at one time or another, or your spouse's. The only question is, will you forgive the other person, and more importantly, will you forgive yourself? Because if we don't, if we don't do that, if that's not part of our practice and our habit, then we stay stuck there in that relationship. And it can look like resentment, it can look like distancing ourselves, pushing people away, whatever it may be, anger. Uh, it can lead to a lot of things, because it has to, because energy and, 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 and intention get played out. But if we're able to free that energy sooner than later, something more interesting can happen. And it's, it's also really, truly about forgiving ourselves. So if you've held a resentment about someone for a long time and you think, man, I've put a lot of energy into this, it's just a matter of doing the forgiveness work. We must drink from the deep well of things as they are. It's easy to fall into resentment. It's easy to look out in the world and say, this person has something and I need that. And what David talks about belonging is that once we belong to ourselves, we don't need anybody else's stuff because we realize we have everything we need. Can I live, the number nine is can I live a courageous life, courageous life. Human beings, David writes, are constantly trying to take courageous paths in their lives, in their marriages, in their relationships, in their work and with themselves. But the human way is to hope that there's a way to take the courageous step without having one's heart broken. And it, and, and it is my contention, David says, that there's no sincere path a human being can take without breaking his or her heart. It's inevitable. So if you're gonna, you want to live a courageous life, and that's what the heart is, when the heart is broken, it, it opens it up for a bigger experience. He says, there's no marriage, no matter how happy, that won't at times find you wanting and breaking your heart. In raising a family, there's no way to be a good mother or father without a child breaking that parental heart. 
in a good job, a good vocation, if we are sincere about our contribution, our work will always find us wanting at times. In an individual life, if we are sincere about examining our own integrity, we should, if we are really serious at times, be existentially disappointed with ourselves. So it can be a lovely, merciful thing to think, in quotations, actually there is no path that I can take without having my heart broken. So why not get on with it and stop wanting these extra special circumstances which stop me from doing something courageous? I might as well get on with it because it's inevitable. And, it's, and, it is, and that's part of the process of belonging. Belonging is ability to live in the world without fears. Belonging to oneself. David tells a story about... Uh, he was in the Himalayas with a friend. They were hiking and they had a Sherpa guide with them. And he said he came, he, he, uh, came down with amoebic dysentery. So he was really weak and he was in a bit of delirium. And he came down from the mountain. He came down this trail. They just opened the trail up. Uh, it had been closed for a long time to any foreigners. And he came into this village. And as he was coming into the village, he, the landscape, as he looked, as they were coming down from a height, they looked and they saw all these, these uh, huts and houses that had been, they were ancient. And they all had flat roofs uh, made out of stone. And he said that at the doorway of each um, residence was a horse. There were half doors, and the horses were all sticking their heads out, looking up and down the street. He said it looked like they were all talking to one another, having a conversation. And there was a lone man that had this very large key. He was a lay monk, as David describes him. He's walking down the middle of the street. And, And so the monk saw them coming, and he shouted something out. He said even their Sherpa didn't speak the language. But it was such a remote village, and he said that he shouted something out, and hundreds of people filled the main street. He said, I don't know where they came from. And they got into the village, and these people literally picked them up and carried them. And the one thing that they had that was precious to them was their temple. And the monk had the key. The big key was for opening the temple door. So they carried them up. They literally picked these guys up, carried them to the temple, opened the door, and showed them the temple. And they didn't have any language to share, so they, just, they figured, you've come this far, and we've never had visitors before, so obviously you came to see our beautiful temple. But he talks about just the, 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 how our, our, our longing is to share what's precious to us with others. And so they just knew immediately without language that this was so important, come see the temple. And, and, and all of those sort of things have informed David's uh, poetry as he, and his, in his uh, lecturing as he's moved down through the, uh, through the world and his own evolution. David says the people who will be the most useful going forward, the people that will be the most useful going forward are the people whose belonging is stronger than their fear. People whose belonging is stronger than their fear. When Jesus talked about it is not I but the Father within, he was talking about that home. The things that I have done ye shall do an even greater He was talking about that home. The Buddha talked about it. Every elevated consciousness that has come down through the ages was speaking the same language. They use different words, but it's about belonging. And David has written a book called The House of Belonging, but belonging to oneself. And when we belong to ourselves, we don't need anybody else's stuff because what's ours comes to us. I've heard it said many, many times, what is mine will recognize me by my face. I've heard it around the prosperity principles of our tradition that, that you cannot, you, it's, all, it's all of our opportunity to, to claim our divine inheritance. Our, every one of us is unique and talented and gifted. 
in a unique and amazing way. Every person has unique skills and talents and gifts. And so part of the, the, I think, pivotal piece about being able to deliver and share those gifts with the most effectiveness is, is, is continuing to nurture that and develop that relationship. And so as David says, the, the mystical and the practical inform. And that's what we are in this teaching. We're a metaphysical teaching. And, and, and so our questions that come up for us are always different. There's always something for us. There's always some contemplation. But once we understand, once we belong to that, and we, and we ease into the conversation, many times David will say ease into the conversation. He's talking about that intuitive. He's talking about that, that still small voice that all of the traditions once again talk about. And developing that and having space in our lives to, to get out of the way at times and say, you know, I don't know right now, but something within me does know. And I'm going to let that inform me on this. As I said, a lot of people loved it a couple weeks ago. I said, if it's right, make it easy. And if it's wrong, make it obvious. In fact, I went on Facebook and, I, and people were quoting me. And I thought, okay, you can quote me on that. I didn't come up with that, but you can quote me on that. So I guess I should take ownership. Yep, I thought that went up. That was mine. But if it's right, make it easy. If it's wrong, make it obvious. The infinite currency is ideas. Belonging is the ability to live in the world without fear. And the people who will be the most valuable and the most useful, not valuable, but useful, as David says, are the people whose belonging is stronger than their fear. And if we look, if we look at, at, at the headlines being held up right now, there's a lot to fear, according to what they're telling us. You know, if systems break down, it'll be chaotic. But what are we going to do? We do the best we can. And, and all of us joining in hysteria around a system breaking down or a system being delayed, I don't think is a very interesting nor productive way to be in relationship. And it, and it takes life wisdom to do that. You know, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a journey. Everyone belongs to the world in a unique and wonderful way. Everyone belongs. Did you know that this is the date, uh, August 1st is called Heritage Days here in Alberta. And in Saskatchewan it's called something else. And I was reading an article in the Edmonton Journal this morning. And August 1st, August 1st, how it originated because I love it, I, you know, being a new Canadian citizen, I love, the, I love the long weekends. I think Canadians have got taken vacations down to a science. I love it. <laughs> Half our membership is traveling somewhere right now. I love it. It's great. Summertime. We love that. But, but what happened um, years and years and years ago, when, when Upper Canada was a, still a territory, the British sent, um, a, and I can't recall his name right now, sent a man over to preside, be in charge. And he was an abolitionist. And he said, slavery, we're not going to have slavery here in Canada. That's when the Underground Railroad started, when a lot of the slaves would make their way to Canada for freedom. But he was an abolitionist. And so this, was a, this is Emancipation Weekend, is what this day is all about. And there was a wonderful article in the paper. And this young man went through the whole history of it, why this is, this is about freedom. It's about emancipation. But it was one man's vision. Laura and I were just watching a... Uh, program about Abraham Lincoln and Mary, Mary Todd and Abraham Lincoln and the tremendous suffering and, and pain they went through. And, at the, and in the middle of the, the Civil War, Lincoln was coming up for re-election. 
and people were just after him. He was convinced he would not be reelected. Isn't that interesting? Here's a man who's probably one of the greatest leaders that has ever lived on the planet, has, has done so much for so many people. And, but he knew he was going to be defeated. And Mary was prepared for it, and he was prepared for it. And uh, a group from Illinois came. He was from, Abe is from Illinois. He was, the, you know, the legend of him. He was splitting logs and stuff like that. And, and a group of his constituents came and said, we've given you, because Lincoln said, we need another 300,000 men to finish this war because he knew the only way to end it was through ending the war. And he knew that defeat was not a possibility. In fact, he told uh, Frederick Douglass, he had him come in and he said, I want you to send free black people to the south and bring as many black people north as you can before the election because I don't think I'm going to get reelected. And if I lose, they will reinstate slavery. That's how passionate he was about this whole cause. And Douglass went away. He said, number one, there's the first president that ever brought a man of color into the White House to ask him an opinion or ask, ask him to do anything. And he said, not only is he a great president, he's a great man. And he understood it. But Lincoln was so passionate about this, and he knew it was the right thing to do. And he said at one point in time, and, and hundreds of thousands of, of people died, and he sent them to war over and over and over again. And we would never accept those losses now, but like half a million people. And he needed another 300,000. And so his constituents from Illinois came and said to him, you know what, we've given you enough, we're not giving you any more. And Lincoln's, they said, Lincoln, listened to all of it. He listened to what they had to say, and he turned around, and he was just enraged. And he said, you are the ones that forced this war upon me. You are the ones that asked for a war of terrorism. You are asked for, on and on and on with the list of requests that they put upon him. And he said, and now? He said, we're going to end this. And he said, you go back and you send me those boys. And, he, and, and, and it was so hard for him to do this. But he knew it was the right thing to do. He said, we have made the promise to free these people. And we're not going to renege on that promise. But the courage it took, and he knew he wasn't going to get reelected. He was, but a lot of things changed in the interim. But he stood his ground, and he said, I doubt that I will ever be glad again. He was so sad to live through this. But to, and, and that's part of the legacy that we have in the West. That's part of the, the willingness of one person with courage to stand up and say, this has to end. And so now we're at a turning point in our evolution as a, as a culture to say, is, it, is, it, is, is what's going to fix all of us to have more and more and more of whatever it is that they're selling. I was reading an article the other day and they said now the new thing is to have a 3D television set because everybody's got the flat screen. So now we get to have the 3D. I don't think I'm going 3D. I like my big TV, but I don't think I'm going 3D. But the point is, is that, is that going to bring me any more joy and happiness? And those are the questions to ask us. There's nothing wrong with it. But that is not the end unto itself. The end, we're here to belong to ourselves. Every great teacher along through the ages has said that. And so it really is the rest of creation is waiting breathlessly for you to take your place. And are you taking your place? And everything is conspiring. Everything we need for all of us to do that is here. But it's asking the question, contemplating it, having spiritual practice in our lives, having moments of silence. One of the questions earlier that David asked in this is, am I willing to have those moments of silence? And to listen and pay attention. I want to share with you um, another poet. I want to end with this today. It's from Mark Nepo. I should go to today's date. I'm looking for it, and I realize I'm reading today's date. It's from July 31st. It's from Mark Nepo, NEPO's book, The Book of Awakening. And on uh, July 31st, 
So every, every page in here, every couple pages, is, a, is a, a writing for around the year, 365 short little excerpts. And this one, he writes, is the eye is the lamp. And it was inspired by a quotation from Jesus. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. So Jesus understood the mystical experience. He understood the divine connection. And he wasn't the, ex- he wasn't the great exception. He's the great example. And, as, and that's part of the challenge for us as well. As long as we continue to make him the great exception, yeah, he was the son of God, but it isn't for me. We're all the sons and daughters of God. Jesus says, Jesus implies that the eye that is clear lets light in. Considering the eye is something that lets light in and not just something that observes light outside itself opens the heart of the matter. To make it through the days, we must consider our heart as something that lets the reality of others in and not just something that maps its way through the desires and fears of others. To let others in as well as to let ourselves out seems essential to staying authentic. This is David White also talking about wholeheartedness, living the authentic life, making the conversation real. Mark Nepple concludes this, his writing. I won't read all of it to you today, but the, the last paragraph I think is quite touching and profound. He says, this raises the very profound question of how to define self-protection. How do we stay safe in a world that says to be fearful? Because the world's a scary place. And, the, and, and so when we, but when we belong, we realize we're always in the right place at the right time. We have everything we need. I was going down the street the other day, and this is a prayer that my teacher gave me. And there was a car. It was out on uh, Yellowhead. There was a car that just looked like it had been a serious, serious accident. All the people had been taken to the hospital, but the freeway was closed. And I looked at it, and as soon as I saw the, the flashing red lights, I said, I know these people have everything they need. That was my prayer. Because how many of us, how many people in the culture will drive up to that and go, oh, my God, it's just horrible. And so what are we affirming for the other person? Horrible. And it, it is an awful accident, but to, to know because we are creative individuals and to learn how to live is to learn how to think. And so our prayer in that, my prayer in that moment was I know everyone here has everything they need. That's what I support at the level of consciousness. Anyway, it raises a very profound question of how to define self-protection. Mark Nepo says, is it, in, is it hiding who you are or is it being who you are? Is it hiding who you are or being who you are? Is it guarding yourself with all that you see or is it clearing yourself to let light in? Is it preparing yourself against all that can hurt you or is it opening yourself to all that can heal you? And those are the choices we have every day, every moment. Is this next thought, what, I, am I, what I'm dwelling upon, is it, is it allowing greater light into my experience? Am I, am I protecting myself or am I opening myself to the, that divine flow of life, that stepping into that mystical that David White talks about, that is just around the next corner, but most people will never take the step? And to, and to come home to belong to ourselves, the belonging. Because what the world needs are people that feel they belong. You and I belong. And so to develop that, that knowing and everywhere we go, everywhere we go, then we can, be of, we can be more useful if we're bringing our fear or we're bringing our light. It's the choice we can make. Blessings.